0: Welcome to Nanny Ogg's Book Club, a Discworld podcast. Join us as we read through all 41 of the fantastical and outrageous Discworld novels. I'm Tessa.
1: And I'm Nigel.
0: This is episode 9, Reaper Man. Can you believe we're already at 9 episodes?
1: No, that's quite bizarre.
0: Yeah, I know. Like, I was thinking about it. I was like, man, we've done 9 episodes this year. I feel very productive.
1: But it's also like I don't believe anything, really. In terms of episode count, in terms of episode count, and just generally, like because as we record this, archive admirers, I have to edit up episode twenty-two.
0: Wow! To go out
1: on Monday, which is like a tenth of the way through the series, we're discussing now. Over a tenth, the episode of hyperfixations that goes out tomorrow, as we're recording this, because we're doing it on a Thursday, is going to be our thirtieth episode.
0: That's so many episodes. Like, what are even numbers?
1: I don't know. <laughs> But when you consider the Archive of Myra's as one, that's like every two weeks. And then we switch to a weekly release with Hyperfixations. So, you know, like it could have been higher. Like I know Monkey is a weekly show, but also I don't know. I, don't, I like I can't fathom that.
0: We just hit, I believe, episode 82 with Monkey. So we're definitely going to get to episode 100 this year. I'm very excited about it. And that's not counting any of like the miniseries or anything like that.
1: Yeah, you you's all released like, like 70-something episodes total last year, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, it's a lot. And I was in every single one of them. I realized that at the end of last year that I had been in all of the Monkey episodes. That will not be true this year, but it was true last year. Reaper Man is the 11th Discworld novel and the second in the Death series. Published in 1991, it is the first Discworld book that we've read that was published while I was alive. All the other ones were before I was born that we've done so far. Part of this book was adapted into a short animated movie called Welcome to the Discworld in 1996 with Christopher Lee as Death.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm behind that. I think Christopher Lee has the gravitas to pull it off because, like, Christopher Lee, like, he was Saruman, but then also before that he was Dracula sherlock and mycroft i'm pretty sure he also made like a death metal two death metal albums i think
0: christopher lee like you mentioned has like a really long history with the hammer horror films back in like the mid-century so there's a lot of that like horror background for him and he has the voice i mean there are very few people that i think can pull off that voice
1: it's very broad that's, what all, that's all, like, I can't do it, but it's, it's a very broad and deep voice, which I think is, I think it's key to death in Discworld, because you can yes. do a deep voice, yeah, but it has to be, like, broad. This is a voice that will be
0: heard. It's a voice that originates in, like, the depths of your vocal cords. It, <laughs> it needs to sound echoey without actually echoing. The title of this novel is a reference to the 1984 cult movie Repo Man by Alex Cox, which I have not seen, but now kind of want to see.
1: I haven't seen it either. I got the Repo Man pun, but then also just, I think that's like a more culturally, like, present thing, the concept of a Repo Man. Like, there's a whole bunch of shows about that now on TV, about, like, Repo Men who go and, you know, reclaim possessions if you're, uh, if you can't pay your debts and stuff.
0: I think that the term Repo Man has sort of become more part of pop culture oeuvre. Like, we we don't necessarily associate it with the 1984 film anymore. It's kind of become detached from that. But it is interesting that this specifically is referencing that film. Yeah. So, brief summary. The auditors of reality have had enough of Death's obsession with humans and their personalities, so they fire him forcing him to join the human world with Binky and what little time he is given. He finds work as a field hand, but adjusting to human life is harder and more terrifying than he ever imagined. Meanwhile, Wendell Poons is a wizard, and wizards always know the exact time of their death. But when death doesn't show up to take him, Wendell must adjust to his new life as a zombie and investigate why there is so much life force building up in Ankh-Morpork. It's actually really hard to summarize this book. That was about the best I could do because there's several very disparate storylines going on in this book. But what were your initial reactions to this novel, Nigel?
1: This novel is great. Very hard to rate, though. Because okay. I really, really liked a lot of it. And then there were certain parts of that I was just like, mm, I don't know. So I ended up giving it a 4.3, which on Goodreads means I gave it four stars. Because, like, anything from a half star up gets the next star, up. that makes sense. So, like, anything 4.5 and above gets given five stars. Because it's, like, from nine to ten, if you imagine it on a, like, out of ten scale. So, like, it's, it's not the best rated Discworld book that uh, I've read. That would be uh, Guards
0: Guards. How does it compare to Mort, the first novel in the Death series?
1: I think I preferred it to Mort.
0: Really? Okay. Why is that?
1: I'm not sure. I think, like, it feels like a sequel to Mort in the sense that two films or games that are one is a spiritual successor of the other are sequels. Like, one is a more mature examination of the things that the other one is trying to do. You know, like, Mort is is related to Repo Man in the sense that Albert and Death Appear And, like, that's it. Which, that's another thing. When does this book take place? Because, I don't know. I I want to get into this later about stuff. But, like, when the hell does this book take place? Is there an official canon timeline for when each of the books takes place in Discworld?
0: That is a great question. We know it takes place in the Century of the Fruit Bat, which is a joke that is ongoing.
1: No, I mean in relation to the other books.
0: It has to be after Sorcery, because we have a new Archchancellor.
1: Yeah, but also, like, it could be before, when you think about it. Because they say also that the Archchancellors have about a lifespan of 11 months.
0: Well, this is where I come in with some knowledge. Ridcully okay, is here to stay. He is not going to disappear like angle and Wazy Goose and weatherwax the other arch chancellors we've seen so far
1: i wonder was the position of the defense against the dark arts teacher in harry potter loath as i am to bring it up inspired by the arch chancellor of the unseen university
0: i thought about that too actually as i was reading it i wasn't sure whether to bring it up or not but yeah there is a joke about halfway through the book where the arch chancellor is really like a 12 month position because The wizards are always jockeying for position or something terrible happens to the Arch Chancellor. So it's almost like a joke at the previous book's expense. Going onwards, this is really the lineup that we have. And I guess we should talk about it because it's one of my favorite parts of this book and other books that these characters appear in. Rid Coley is the new Arch Chancellor and he is here to stay as are the lecturer in recent runes, the dean, the bursar, the senior wrangler. These are all characters that kind of form a core. This is what the Unseen University is now. And when I think of the Unseen University, I think of these characters. I actually don't think about the Archchancellors from the 80s as much, unless I'm thinking about those specific books. So like to me this was great because I was like, oh yes, they're here. They're finally here. The the people that I actually really care about in the Unseen University. What did you think about Mustrum Ridcoli and this particular group of faculty members?
1: I thought they were like patently ridiculous in the best possible way because it's <laughs> like Mustrum Ridcoli is like genetically predisposed not to be told to shut up. Like he's never heard it before up until... He's told not to swear, which I thought was very funny. They're like the three stooges, but there's five of them, where they're all, like, completely and utterly moronic. But, like, they're able to get stuff done. Each of them brings something to the table that the other one doesn't.
0: They kind of bicker their way into a solution. The conversations, the way that they talk to each other is so funny. Every single time that we are watching them try to solve a problem and they stumble their way into a solution because they're all incredibly smart, but in like the stupidest way possible. (laughs) Like to me, this is one of the best groups of people, like groups of characters, I should say. This is one of the best groups of characters because they're just a bunch of old men trying to like solve a problem. It's like a herd of cats almost (laughs) like they're not, predisposed to group work, but they're all sort of being forced into group work by Ridcully and by their situation.
1: Yeah, here we go. The Dean hung his head. Oh. Yes, arch And why hasn't everything gone boom? I put a slight delay on it, arch I thought perhaps we ought to get out before things happened. Good thinking, that man.
0: <laughs> it's just this, like, back and forth, and the poor burser and his anxiety is being, like, actively triggered by the other wizards, but he's still very helpful to them. It's just such a strange group of people, but it works so well. What did you think about Mustram Ridcoli and his and his wizard tracksuit?
1: There's a lot of stuff in Discworld in general and in this book about the advance of modernization. You know, specifically like I, I guess in fantasy it'll always be the advance of like towards steampunk era. You see it in uh, the Mistborn books and stuff that advance from, like, traditional fantasy to, you know, into more steampunk stuff. And that's kind of happening with, like, the combination harvester in this. But, like, the advance of, like, exercise culture is something that's distinctly modern, but, like, it's not something you think about. It nearly feels like a critique of, of, like, 80s, 90s America with, like, the whole lycra tracksuit you know like step aerobics type thing (laughs) you know where everyone's wearing their their head like he's wearing a headband isn't he like one of those those fluffy ones that's how they describe him running around the corridors i'm pretty sure his
0: wizarding hat is tied firmly onto his head with a string so he still wears the hat but but his robes are like a garish blue and red tracksuit
1: it's very much like you would definitely see him jogging in a, like, well-to-do middle-class neighborhood in uh 1987, you know, and he then he'd go past the blockbuster or something. That's where I imagine Mustrom, like, Mustrom Ridcully seems like the platonic ideal of what the father of a nuclear family was in the 80s and 90s, because we had gone past this concept of the father being the sole breadwinner. From the 50s and 60s, which Discworld, you know, wasn't written in and doesn't really harken back to. So it was real contemporary society. But this whole thing of, like, he has to provide... But in this case, like, the faculty of senior staff in the Unseen University is a nuclear, in the, like, literal sense of the word, family. Where they're, like, they're just about to, like, bubble over and destroy everything.
0: All the time. I love the description of him at the beginning, where they say he's either the best or worst arch depending on how you look at it. But yeah, he like jogs around the university buildings. He'd shout cheerfully up at them because fundamental to the makeup of people like Mustrum Ridcoli is an iron belief that everyone would like it too, if only they tried it. Maybe he'll die, they told one another, hopefully, as they watched him try to break the crest on the river Ankh for an early morning dip. All this healthy exercise can't be good for him. Stories trickled back to the university. The Archchancellor had gone two rounds barefisted with Detritus, the huge odd-job troll, at the mended drum. The Archchancellor had arm-wrestled with the librarian for a bet, and although of course he hadn't won, still had his arm afterwards. The Archchancellor wanted the university to form its own football team for the big city game on Hogswatch Day. Intellectually, Ridkoly maintained his position for two reasons. One was that he never, ever changed his mind about anything. The other was that it took him several minutes to understand any new idea put to him. And this is a very valuable trait in a leader because anything anyone is still trying to explain to you after two minutes is probably important. And anything they give up after a mere minute or so is almost certainly something they shouldn't have been bothering you with in the first place. Mm. That told me everything I needed to know about Rid Coley. He's just a very set in his ways, but those ways are extremely new and different from any Chancellor we've seen before in these books.
1: Yeah, but also you know that he must be good if that's what opinions of him are. The fact that there's no one who's willing to take a middle ground one way or the other between him. Either he's the best for what he represents in this newness, or he's the worst for trying to bring it in. But no one is occupying a middle ground when it comes to red color. He
0: has a very divisive character in that way. And also very interesting is the revelation about halfway through the book that he has a brother who is the head, the high priest in Ackmorpork. He is the head of the priest guild in Ackmorpork, which kind of, to me, that almost seemed like You know, like, those movies where you have two brothers who are on opposite sides of the law? Like, you have one that's, like, the sheriff and one that's, like, the head of, like, the outlaws or whatever? Because the wizards and priests hate each other for understandable reasons. They're two different paradigms for looking at the universe, right? One is religious and one is inherently magical.
1: The wizards occupy the the science side of the science-faith divide Mm -hmm. because it's, like, they're, you know, like, they're both extra sensory things but male magic is just geometry right you know
0: I love how they just like as the wizards and priests are fighting with each other they just like knock off for a smoke (laughs) like they just talk about like okay is this is this really you tell me is it really you (laughs) is it your people
1: I definitely feel like I've seen or read this type of scene before Uh, you know where it's just like that where like especially the oh mom wants to know whether you'll be back for christmas type dialogue i'm nearly sure that i've read or seen that somewhere and it's this isn't like a oh it was stolen because this was written beforehand but it's like you know this is another thing it's a specific thing that's being made reference to maybe not like any one particular work but you know that kind of thing
0: I love that scene. And I love that it's only halfway through the scene that we realize that they're actually brothers. Like at first you just think like, oh, well, they're just two people who are heads of their respective organizations that like know and respect each other. But then it's like, no, they're actually brothers. Like they have to take mom to dinner next week. (laughs) Yeah. What did you think of the other wizards? So lecturer in recent runes, the dean, the bursar, the senior wrangler. Which is a great faculty title. I want to be a senior wrangler.
1: They're exactly who they need to be. You know, to make up that, like, comedic lineup. And that's uh, what I think, effectively, they are. And again, this is not meant to be a criticism. Like, I think that's the whole point. Because previous arch chancellors and heads of the faculty were, they were kind of, like, self-serious. You know, like, I don't know. I was, I kind of liked, um, Galder Weatherwax in The Color of Magic. No, not The Color of Magic, The Light Fantastic, because he was like, very much, you don't get up early enough in the day to pull one up, up over me because I don't go to sleep. But he's very much self-serious, and Wazy Goose seemed a bit like that as well, and Cut Angle was like, well, everything has been like this before, so that's how it should stay. But then also, like, maybe I'll get remembered if I change things. I don't know. But all of these heads of the the faculty, the lecture in recent rooms, the bursar, uh, the arch chancellor as well, they're all, like, the right balance between you know, the old guard and also, like, these things are happening, we've never seen them before, so, like, I don't know. Just gotta deal with them, I guess. And you say, like, they're they're going to be the ones to stick around. I think that's probably why, because they're whether they like it or not, they're the people to deal with problems that they've never encountered. And so just being like, oh well.
0: It's almost like before with the university, all of those characters, all of those personalities were almost too unbalanced. Like there was too much cutthroatness. There's too much magical ambition. This seems like the right blend of personalities to actually achieve equilibrium because there is some ambition, but a lot of these characters are almost too, they get in their own way too much to do actual damage to each other. I think that that works really well, not just comedically, but actually works pretty well to achieve like an actual sustainable ecosystem for the Unseen University. And it's very Pratchett, right? Like, you don't want someone in charge who's too clever because clever people tend to, to mess things up, right? You want somebody in charge who can fix things but won't be so clever that they get in their own way or they don't, you know, they're not going to cause the Mage Wars 3, right? Like, this group of people is not going to do that because they can't. They don't know how. Yeah. I guess so, while we're at the Unseen University, let's talk about Wendell Poon's.
1: Oh, my beloved. I don't want to get into some of it now because it it touches into a larger point that I want to get into later, which is heralded by my message, Had a Revelation.
0: <laughs> I'm so excited.
1: Oh, well, I hope that now I can actually follow through on it. But anyway, I don't know. He's so precious where he's just like, he's dead, but also like he doesn't want to be a bother.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the scenes with Coley and the wizards are like, trying to kill him and he's just like oh this is really nice of you <laughs>
1: like- would they like try and bury him and then it's like it didn't work oh but you can try again if you want <laughs> or he jumps off the bridge to try and drown himself in the onk and then gets out of it after a while and it's just like i didn't like sitting still at the bottom of it
0: <laughs> he was like it's too dark it took me a while to find the steps <laughs> To get out. Yeah. I think it's interesting that we get to see him before he dies at the beginning, and he's just this really grumpy, almost senile old man. And then after he dies, he almost becomes a different character because he now has like access to all these parts of his brain and body that he didn't, that were clouded by old age. Stuff like pain and stuff like memory and... That kind of thing. And now he's, like, this much more clear-sighted individual. He's also very strong, right? He's got, like, zombie super strength.
1: It's a lot of the rhetoric that people in, like, future shock thrillers use when they're trying to, like, sell, I don't know, like, technology which allows you, your consciousness to transcend your mortal form or to, like, reverse aging or something, you know, where it's like, you know, your senses are dull and this isn't you anymore. And it really, like... That's very ableist, but like the way the the way that like Wendell Poons does this is just like, well, he just decides to use his own body better. Right. Because now he doesn't have an endpoint. The language being that his body isn't suitable. It's more just like, well, he's gonna use it t- to the full extent that he possibly can. It's a nice like circumvention of pitfall that maybe people don't intentionally go into but they can accidentally fall into just based on like the themes that they're writing in
0: the way it's presented especially at the beginning when he like wakes up and he's not dead right and he's got to like try to figure out how to use his body it's got a lot of like very body horror type of language about it because he's suddenly aware of everything that's going on in his body which most people aren't aware most systems in the body are autonomic, right? Like, I am not, when I, as I'm sitting here, I am not telling my stomach to digest my breakfast or my heart to keep beating or, you know, my liver to do what my liver does, right? Like, those things happen automatically. I'm not consciously thinking about those things. But for Wendell Poon's to exist after death and to actually do things He has to tell all of these processes to happen. like, he's got to constantly be thinking about, like, what does a liver do, right? Like, he's like, wait, can I have a drink? Will my liver, can I, like, tell my liver to handle that? He is super strong, and he is a lot more clear-minded, but he has to do a lot more work for that than he would have if he had been alive.
1: And touching on the super strength part, this is how I'm going to segue into Nigel quotes the mountain goats.
0: Yay!
1: I thought it was really really sad the bit where he has to like break into the Unseen University to like get into his room. People have already put stuff in it because he's dead and obviously like they've never really had a case of revenance, and this is what Red Shoe is trying to advocate for but you know like it's incredibly sad how quickly they move on and it's not it's not really a thing that you can apply 100% across the board. You know, a lot of people are very sad for a long time when they lose a loved one, but it's just like, oh well, he's dead, we can put the room to some other use. There's a Mountain Goat song called Genesis 33. It's another one of the Bible verse songs from The Life of the World to Come. And it's all about going back home. No, sorry, that's the wrong one. It's Genesis 323 thirty-three is a, a different sad song. Uh this one is about like trying to go back to places that you were from and the narrator of that one also breaks into his own like childhood home. You know, he like he knows how to get in. He says at one point, see how the people here live now, hope they're better at it than I was and then the chorus is just I used to live here, I used to live here, I used to live here, I used to live here. Pictures up on the mantle, nobody I know I stand by the tiny furnace where the long shadows grow. Living room to bedroom to kitchen, familiar and warm. Hours spent starving within these walls. Sound of a distant storm. And then, fight through the ghosts in the hallway, duck and weave. Stand by the door with my eyes closed when it's time to leave. And then as well, just, this song has one of my favorite ever, like, descriptions in a song. Mountain goats are really good at doing it. So I'll bring it up. It's not apropos to Windle Poon's, but It's the bridge at the end. Break the lock on my own garden gate. So he has to break into his own house when he gets back to where he's living now. When I get home after dark, sit looking up at the stars outside like teeth in the mouth of a shark.
0: He has to break back in, like you said, but also, like, when he first comes back, like, when he first comes and reveals himself to the faculty they're like, well, I'm not giving his bedroom back. Like, like it is very much like they just suddenly moved on. And part of that might be because wizards are so prepared for their own deaths, right? Like they throw him like a going away party. And so like, that's kind of a ritual of moving on. It's kind of a thing that's supposed to help. Okay, he's moving on, he's leaving, like we have to move on too. But at the same time, yeah, it's really sad. Like the idea that he has to come back and he's like thinking about like, wait, do I have money? Like, did I leave my money to myself and my will? What's the legal recourse here for me, someone who is existing longer than I wanted to exist? Because he doesn't really want to be alive or undead. He wanted to move on. And did you notice that he wants to come back as a woman? Like he believes in reincarnation and he plans on coming back as a woman?
1: Yes. But it's also like quite sad because they they do also say before he dies that like no one is listening to him. And he gets quite upset the fact that like it's his own going away party and no one really seems to care.
0: And they're bickering too much because that's mm. their dynamic. I like Wendell Poons as a character. I honestly kind of want a book where Wendell Poons is reborn as a woman. Like I kind of want to read that book.
1: But yeah, I thought Wendell would get would get out of this alive. Well, really? undead. Really? Yeah, I thought that that would be it. That like that would be the kindness granted Wendell you know, where he would just learn and accept his life as being undead, and that would have been the transition. You know, especially because we meet the, um, or what are they called? The Second Chancers? Something?
0: The Fresh Start Club, the support group for the undead, run by Red Shoe. Red Shoe is a reoccurring minor character, so... Oh,
1: excellent. Yeah, (laughs) just because they spent so much time building up Red Shoe, Lupine, the Notferatus, Count Ixalot, you know.
0: Mr. Ixalot?
1: Mr. Ixalot, even, yeah. Sheppel? Yeah, Schleppel, the, the, um, shy bogeyman, who has a moment <laughs> where it explicitly says, oh, he came out of the closet and has found himself. <laughs> I thought, like, after all the building up that they would have done, that, especially after the themes of the novel, would have been like, well, it's okay to live like this. You know?
0: So, we're going to talk about Death's character art because there's really two different threads, right? There's the Wendell Poons, Ankh Morpork, Unseen University thread, and then there's Death's thread. And we're going to talk about Death's thread, but I do really love the part at the end where Wendell has this conversation with Death, that the two threads come together. And he says, You know, said Wendell, it's a wonderful afterlife. Where were you? I was busy. Wendell wasn't really listening. I've met people I never even knew existed. I've done all sorts of things. I've really gotten to know who Wendell Poons is. Who is he then? Wendell Poons. I thought that was actually a very good wrap up to that character, or like at least a. It brings the threads together really well because a lot of this book is also about death figuring out who he really is. It also, to me, tells me that Wendell Poons, like he needed this addendum epilogue codicil to his life he would have never figured out who wendell poons really was if it wasn't for this brief afterlife that he gets because of this sort of accident of death getting fired
1: yeah there's definitely like a ya john hughes uh wes anderson film you know like that it will be called something like the wonderful afterlife of Wendell Poons or something, you know, <laughs> something like that. And I would like definitely watch or read the shit out of that, you know, like, and that's my main criticism of the book where it's like, why is the Ankh Morpork plot thread like that? I understand the Wendell Poons thing and he's learning to live after death, which is fine because death is learning to live after death right but what like what's with the shopping trolley thing i don't understand what like oh it's a great plot but i feel like it like it doesn't fit with the book to me like i think that could have been a separate book on its own and the yeah. whole thing could have been like a lampoon slash critique of consumer capitalism which is what it tries to be and it would have been really nice to have because like we we get a brief glimpse of uh cut me own throat gibbler I don't think it fits. I feel like they're de- like you could have definitely repurposed the whole plotline with the excess life energy and had Windle investigate that and made like a different thing out of it and still kept the same, you know, like the same plot arc with the Fresh Start Club. It would have nothing to do with these trolleys and the like, because it's a mall that's being built. What has that got to do with it? Yeah, I really liked the stuff at the start, you know, where it was like hinting at that we were like, with the Vegas language, you know, like, uh, as something went plop, you know, like the cupboard started to fill up that kind of vague stuff, because it was evocative of how they talked about the place where the dragons are dormant at the start of guards guards, but then I really didn't like where it went.
0: I liked the whole idea of the snow globes and I liked the life force thing. Uh, One of the funniest things in the book to me is how Rid Coley's swears kept taking shape because I could just, this was a moment where I just thought of Terry Pratchett sitting down in front of his like eight screen computer or whatever version of that he had in the nineties giggling to himself as he tried to figure out like what the word (laughs) bloody would look like. (laughs) as a swear come to life like all of that was very funny to me that could have been the actual plot because i'm not even completely sure how the mall and the life force thing are connected with each other because the implication is that this has happened before to other cities the whole metaphor like wendell says that it's like a predator it's a parasite you have a city that's alive and then this other life form comes along and it's a mall, even though they don't use the word mall until the very end. So if you weren't paying attention, it would be very easy to be like, what is this thing that's happening over on the side? And it sort of drains the life force from a city. And that's supposed to be like a metaphor for capitalism, corporate, consumerist culture, killing urban centers and city life. But It's not clear how it's connected to the life force thing. It's not clear how it's connected to the whole death being fired thing.
1: It's a death book. I don't...
0: It seems to be its own story. Like, would this have happened even if death hadn't been fired? Like, that's very confusing to me.
1: Because from what I understand, especially based off of the titles of later books, there's a lot to do with modernization. You know, like, going postal and raising steam seem to indicate that there's, like... Either someone goes crazy, but I feel like that's a pun on Pratchett's part, you know, like, how equal rights is a pun, and it's- He does do like with- his puns. Yeah, I feel like it's actually to do with the postal system, and Raising Steam has a train on the cover, so it seems to be, like, that's the advancement into, like, steampunk stuff. Also, Moving Pictures, which I bought recently, like, it talks about Hollywood on the back. Right, right. You know, it's an interesting theme and it's definitely like being done, especially like how Two Flower, God, we haven't talked about Two Flower in a bit. I wonder how he's getting on. (laughs) You know, has this camera where he's the first tourist to the disc world and it could have been done in that series. I think if that is a series. Yeah, it's out of place because it's a death book, I think.
0: Usually with Pratchett, when he's very good at this just eerie fantasy imagery that's like juxtaposed with the meta humor and the puns and the jokes, I had more difficulty imagining this mall than I did the white towers from sorcery or like the gods and the sun and the pyramids in that like 90 degree parallel universe of pyramids. I was just like, is this a mall? Is it like a living creature? Like, it took me probably three reads to realize that this moving staircase they were going down was an escalator. Like, it just, it took me much longer to understand what was happening in this section of the book than it did in previous books.
1: Yeah, actually, just briefly on pyramids. I think this is the first one we've read so far that doesn't have a reference to sort.
0: Yeah, I didn't notice any sort references either. Maybe we should start keeping track of that in our ending yeah. <laughs> <laughs> references to sort. Yes, I'm gonna write that down. Actually, we should do that. We'll put yeah. references to sort in Reaper Man zero.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll go back and just get it, di- like download the digital copy and keyword search source just so we're, <laughs> we're able to pinpoint the number of them.
0: I'm on it. I'm on it. Yeah. I wanted to point out that the stuff with the mall and the wizards fighting the trolleys and the mall, there's a lot of references to the movie Aliens in there. There's a scene where in Aliens where they say, remember, short controlled bursts. And there's a scene in this book where Rid Coley says, remember, wild and uncontrolled bursts. And of course, like all the tentacles and like the queen mother that's like a monster, that's all very Aliens. I also really appreciated that there is a scene because the Dean kind of goes off the rails a little bit with, with yo and, and going kind of going gung ho. I appreciated that there's a scene where I think it's Coley calls him out for cultural appropriation where he says like, that's not, that's not the same culture. It doesn't make any sense in the context that you're using it. I appreciated yeah. that.
1: And they say like, they say, Oh, uh, what do you say? And they say bonsai. Which is, like, the trees, but then they're they're thinking of B-A-N-Z-A-I, Banzai. Yeah. But I also really enjoyed the, um, the references to, like, real-world things. This is the thing Discworld does where it's like, this is the exact same thing, but we have a different name for it. Like, where Death is in the bar and he plays pond instead of pool. Yes! Or what, what's the version of Monopoly that he plays where it's exclusive like...
0: Exclusive Possession.
1: Exclusive Possession, yes. That's an
0: ongoing joke because we've heard that before where he says, I'll play any game, just not the one with the, the properties. I always get confused.
1: We still haven't figured out what the bridge game they're playing, whether it's
0: bridge or pontoon. We also get a reference to Cripple Mr. Onion, which is like a poker kind of style game that we'll see in later books as well.
1: What, what, is that, what is that a reference to? When I th- read it, I thought they were referencing Beggar Me Neighbor, but I don't actually know what Beggar Me Neighbor is. I know it's a game that I'm pretty sure I played with my granny once or twice, and it's also like referenced in Great Expectations. It's the game that Miss Havisham makes Estelle play with Pip, uh, you know, a so make him beg.
0: Okay, so I just looked up Cripple Mr. Onion. Some Discworld fans have figured out how to play it. So I'm going to send you this link because we don't have time to go through it right now. But apparently, there are like. We should rules. do a bonus
1: episode where we play Cripple Mr. Cripple Onion. Cripple
0: Mr. Onion. I would be. I think we'd have to make ourselves a deck of cards, though, too, because it's like an eight suit deck. That'll be interesting. That should be something we definitely investigate. There's also an Indiana Jones reference at one point because Yes, that's is, what it was. Is that what you were thinking that's of because yeah, when they bragged Yes, the man with the, the whip. The, the yes. man with the whip made it as far as the darts. Yeah. So you get that
1: This feels like the Avengers of Discworld so far because it's like it's got a bit of everything. You know. We have all it has of these a lot
0: of cameos. Yeah, from exactly. Other books. So yeah, we have Colin who is from the watch books and he's guarding the, the the bridge because he assumes that one day someone will try to steal it which knowing on more is not wrong
1: yeah i feel like if that's not paid off somehow i'm gonna be very not annoyed because it's like a throwaway gag but i'm gonna be like very confused as to why it's not yeah i wasn't expecting it but i was expecting like other of the watch characters to appear and that's what confused me about the timeline so to return briefly to the timeline, the patrician, obviously, he's there. That's great. One of the best descriptions of the patrician happens in this book, and uh, where he appears behind them after, while people are trying to dig him out of his office. They say he can only be de- something which could only be described as human by default. <laughs> I love the patrician. The patrician is, I think, my favorite character.
0: Oh, even more than the librarian.
1: I don't know like in this book mm, like out of the cameos maybe because it's like the librarian death and the patrician kind of like depending on the story and their function in it like it goes up and down because he he doesn't really add anything to it he's just there because he wants to know whether it's the wizards and whether the wizards can do anything and then he's not there anymore
0: right yeah yeah
1: And so we have him, and we have the librarian, and we have Colon, and we have Cut Me Own Throat Dibbler.
0: The one scene that he's in where they're talking, and suddenly he appears behind them out of a secret passage, like, that's classic Vetinari. Like, that's a reference to his origins. Have we talked about his origins yet? I couldn't remember if they actually talked about who he was, like, what... No. His situation is. Okay, well, then I won't spoil it, because it, it definitely comes up in a later book. This is a hint as to his origins, the way that he can sneak up on people like this.
1: Was he a stage magician? <laughs>
0: a stage magician. No, there are a couple other cameos. At one point, Mrs. Flitworth, or sorry, Ms. Flitworth.
1: Yeah, yeah Ms. They take Flitworth. those type of things very seriously in those parts.
0: Right. Ms. Flitworth references that there's a witch-lanker way.
1: Yes, And then also, that's what I remembered, we have a tease, we have a post-credit tease nearly for the amazing Maurice and his educated rodents.
0: Yeah, so we have like a future cameo, because yeah, it comes up a couple of times, the Pied Piper storyline of, you know, the rats and then them being charmed out of the city, but it turns out that was a scam perpetrated by the amazing Maurice and his educated rodents, which is, of course, the title of a Discworld book later that actually is about the amazing Maurice and his educated rodents. That's gonna be a film that's coming out at some point in the next couple of years. I think Emily or it's sorry, Amelia Clark. Yeah, Amelia Clark is in it. We also get a very brief reference to Isabel when Miss Flitworth asks Death if he has any children and he says I have a daughter, but we don't we've lost touch. So that's a reference to Isabel. They obviously don't talk much anymore. There's also, of course, Albert is at the beginning of this book. When we see Death's house, he's also at the end of this book, just quietly buttling away.
1: Yeah. Also, does, I'm pretty sure... Doesn't Albert choose to die at the end of Mort? Or he dies, right?
0: No, I don't think so. Albert doesn't want to die.
1: Yeah, but I, I don't know. I thought in my head... Doesn't he, like, die because he's a... W- no. I may be remembering Mort wrong. Because he, like, goes... Into the real world, which I'm pretty sure seals his fate, right?
0: Well, so anytime he's in the real world, his time is ticking by. And he only has about two months of time left. So he like hoards it. But when he's in death's house, the time stops. So Hmm. he progressed closer to death in Mort, but he didn't actually die.
1: Right. Okay. But that's right. That was what's confusing me because I thought he had died. So I was like. Then it takes place prior to Mort, which is weird because like Mort has a reference to Rincewind when Albert goes to the Unseen University. But then Rincewind is still MIA.
0: Yes, he is. He's still not he's still not around. No, this definitely takes place after Mort because Isabel, they've lost touch. She obviously is gone. She lives with Mort now. There are two other cameos, although they are for future books as well, just like The Amazing Maurice. We get a reference to the continent of XXXX, 4X, which is the main setting of the last continent, which is a Rincewind book later on. It's also known as 4X. It is a very clear reference to Australia. That is supposed to be the Australia of the Discworld. We also get a footnote that talks about the Discworld's greatest lover, Casa the dwarf who uses a stepladder. That is a character that we will actually see in a later book as well. So those are the cameos that I noticed in this book. That's
1: a pun on Casanova.
0: Exactly, Casa <laughs> So you didn't like the mall stuff. I didn't really either. But what did you think about the Fresh Start Club with Red Sue Red Shoe?
1: Reg Shoe.
0: Reg Shoe, the zombie, and the other members. Ah,
1: I love them. They're so... They're such, like, a breakfast club of of societal outcasts. (laughs) I'm always... Like, problematic as the breakfast club is, that kind of, like, trope, I'm a sucker for. So...
0: The misfits all getting together.
1: Yeah, exactly. And it's, like... I don't know. It's something that you really don't consider in fantasy settings it's like well what happens to people after they die and if they come back if there's that magic also did you catch the bob dylan reference i did not yeah so this is a thing so as we're reading more and more of the disc world it's becoming increasingly clear which part of collaborations that terry pratchett has written you know (laughs) yes like the horseman In Good Omens is very much Pratchett. So when he shows up at the Fresh Start Club and Red Shoe uh, invites him in, he says, don't stand in the doorway, don't block up the hall, which is a line from The Times They Are Changing, which is interesting because that verse is a call to inactive politicians, now senators, now congressmen, please heed the call, don't stand in the doorway, don't block up the hall.
0: Right. And they talk about how he would make them sing We Will Overcome, which is another like sixties protest song. So yeah, yeah that, that definitely makes sense.
1: Like it seems that Pratchett is a fan of Dylan. Because in The Long Earth, which he wrote like the first book of the Long Earth series, which is also called The Long Earth, there's a character who like her main personality trait. Like, as we're introduced to her at the start, is that she knows all the words to all the Bob Dylan songs. She resigns with a line, and I can't remember it, and my book of The Long Earth is in Westmeath, and so I, and I couldn't find a digital copy of it online. I'm gonna try and just, like, in the background now. She resigns with a, a line from a Dylan song, and I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure I, th- I, I think it's this exact line. You know, don't stand in the doorway. Don't block up the hall. Something like that.
0: The Fresh Start Club is really interesting because Red Shoe is very much like dead rights. He wants rights for the undead. He is speaking like what he's talking about sounds very much like community organizing for civil rights. The others just seem to treat it more like it's a get together, like a support group. They are very much less invested in the rights for the undead as much as Red Shoe is. So the first time I read it, I did not care about Arthur and Doreen Winkling. Like, I just did not care about them. As characters, they seemed... I think when I was a teenager, I was just more into cool vampires than I was into this. I laughed so hard at every single scene that they were in, especially when Arthur Winking describes vampirism as a curse because he's lower middle class with an upper class condition. Yeah, that was one of my favorite lines of this book
1: but i think as well i think this type of thing hits different in the wake of what we do in the shadows mm-hmm. the taika waititi film but also more specifically the series because i read arthur winkings as laszlo from the series who's played by matt Barry, who definitely gives off the vibe of you know someone who's afflicted with an upper class condition.
0: Vampires are such part of the cultural consciousness now, and we have all different types of vampires, but it's definitely a throwback to vampires are supposed to be like a metaphor for the aristocracy. Like the whole point of Dracula coming in and like killing Lucy in Dracula is that it's, you know, an old aristocratic other you know, somebody from somewhere else is coming in and he's actually sucking the blood of like a, a white middle-class young woman. Like, you know, like, so it's supposed to be like the metaphor for the way that the aristocracy like lives off of the merchant class, the the middle class. So I appreciated this idea of so many of the trappings of vampirism are associated with wealth and aristocracy and he's just this middle-class merchant who's just trying to like make his way through life. yeah. Mr. Ixolite also very funny the way he gives notes to people very politely Yeah before they're about to die my favorite is when death is like I have been given a badly misspelled note by a banshee
1: Yeah and it just says ooh <laughs>
0: Okay, we're almost an hour in and we still haven't talked about death, but before we get there... This is going to other... be a
1: long episode. <laughs>
0: there, there's one other ankh character or set of characters that we need to talk about, which is Mrs. Cake, who is a medium but actually a small, Ludmilla, her daughter, who turns into a wolf person once a month, and of course, one-man bucket.
1: I didn't particularly care for Miss Cake a lot, I don't know. Uh, The way her character is, is just kind of like cantankerous old lady. But what I really liked was the fact that she has her um, premonition on all the time and is constantly (laughs) answering people's questions before they ask them.
0: Oh my god, the conversation between her and Rid Coley was infuriating. Yeah. Because Rid Coley absolutely cannot, he's like physically incapable of stopping and like actually observing what's happening. And it just felt like another old school, jolly old chap, you know, ignoring a woman who's trying to, like, tell him something. Yeah. That really infuriated me. She's a character we're going to see again. She is a part of the Ankh-Morpork fabric. I really like her. I think that the joke about her and religion is really funny. The scene at the end where the two high priests grab each other in terror because they think it's mrs cake who's coming in past all of their traps but it's actually just death and they're like oh okay phew yeah that was very funny but i do not like one man bucket and i do not like their whole shtick of her like he's like her spirit guide or her familiar mainly because i find it to be just on the edge of insulting towards indigenous people, even though he's not supposed to be like, he's supposed to be someone who grew up in Oakmore Park, but he is also supposed to be an indigenous person. Yeah. And he's like an alcoholic and he like takes on these trappings of, of some very like kind of racist stereotypes, even though they're immediately undercut by Mrs. Cake saying, stop talking like that. That's not who you are
1: yeah it definitely read as like yeah i don't know like orientalist mysticism nearly like you know the way that people nearly fetishize uh buddhist monks and like the idea of oh here's a shaman who can call out to other worlds and stuff i didn't enjoy that but i enjoyed the concept of killing things so they appear in the spirit world like how she gives him his drink And this is something, like, that we see later on with Death wanting Mr. Simnel to kill the scythe, which is the sharpest one imaginable, so it can be used by Death. That was probably the best thing to come from that, like, that idea.
0: Right, I think for me, the problem with One Man Bucket is that there's such a fetishization of Native American indigenous... Spiritualism in the U.S., especially like this idea that like oh like we need a spirit guide or we're gonna go on a spirit journey or we need a spirit animal and all of those are actually like really important ideas in indigenous cultures and religion. This just feels like more of that co-opting, basically. And I know it's supposed to be funny because he's not actually like he's not actually that way, right? Like he's he's supposed to be like an porky and just like the rest of them but it just it still feels really icky it feels like mm, this feels like you're trying to it's like anytime they make a indigenous character in a television show a hunter is that what you think indigenous people are you know what i mean like it, it, they can do yeah. more than just that right so to me it just felt a little weird
1: yeah and the name as well seems to be this not perversion but definitely i don't know you know of american native tribes like first nation names you know like chief standing bear and stuff
0: and he says it's because his mother when it's a tradition in their tribe that when she looks out of the tent the first thing she sees is the name of the child and so it's one man throwing a bucket of water over two dogs and there's the joke about how his his twin brother uh, wendell poons is like is it two dogs fighting and he's like, oh no, he would have given his right arm for it to be two dogs fighting. So it's it's supposed to be like this funny, dirty joke. And it's kind of funny, but not really that funny. Like, it, is it really worth it to, to go through all of this stuff to get to that joke? No. I know you're not the biggest fan of romance in your fiction, but there is a little romance here with Lupine and Ludmilla. I'm
1: going to be honest. I like that. I don't know. It's... It- Because it seems like, especially Lupine, because he's a part of the Fresh Start Club and he's this, you know, like, he's this outcast both from humanity and from wolves because he's a reverse werewolf. And then also, like, Ludmilla is constantly told to hide away by her mother despite the fact that it's, like, been two days since the full moon and stuff. What really sold it for me at the end was. Yeah, it's a conversation he has with One Man Bucket. Are you there, One Man Bucket? He said softly. How did you know? You're generally around. (laughs) You've caused some real trouble there. You know what's going to happen next full moon. Yes, I do. And I think somehow that they do too. But he'll become a wolf man. Yes, and she'll become a wolf woman. Alright, but what kind of relationship can people have one week and four? Maybe at least as good a chance of happiness as most people get. Life isn't perfect, one man bucket. You know, where it's like they're making the best of it, and they say, like, slightly later on, that in the distance, he sees, you know, two, uh, wolf like shapes, uh, you like on a hilltop in the distance. You know, so like they're making it work. You know, and it's not, it's never like put in my face, which is good because I don't have to deal with it.
0: <laughs> This reminded me a lot of the ending of Guards, Guards with Errol and the Dragon. Like the idea of like, they're going to make it work, right? Like what kind of life can they have? Well, the best life that you can have. Because Lupine tells us that he's so lonely because nobody understands him. Because he's a wolf most of the time, except for that one night a year where he's a wolf man but he's not like the other wolves because he says he feels and he knows. It's almost like a esk, right? How she would have become an eagle that remembered being human or that dreamed sometimes about being human. When he's yeah. a wolf, he, he says he feels and he knows. He can know what the feeling is that he's having. He doesn't just feel it. And so they talk about that later, that Ludmilla is the only other person that both feels and knows. And so like the idea of finding that one person that understands you and then like you said also just making it work right despite perhaps the the barriers between you and that person although it does give a whole new meaning to the relationship between a girl and her dog right because he's like gonna live with them as like her dog yeah so one last thing before we move to the other thread which is the death thread we also get introduced to moto the university gardener. i
1: love moto He's the gar- he's the gardener of the Unseen University, but he's great because he's just not Faze. Like, Wendell shows up in the garden, and then he's just like, Oh, evening, Mr. Poons. I heard you were dead. And it's like, yeah, well, it doesn't seem to have stuck, does it? And he's like, all right, yeah, carry on. <laughs> yeah, I think he's the f- he's my favorite minor character that we've been introduced to this book because i don't want to say favorite character like new character because that's you know like i really like wendell but he's definitely like a minor character that i really liked that we were introduced to for the first time he, he was he was never mentioned before was he
0: no he is new to this he will be in small portions of other books again he's a fixture of the university just like the lecture in recent runes and the dean and the bursar are There's a lot in this book, and we're going to talk about this as we... This is probably a good transition, actually, into the death arc. There's a lot in this book about people who care about their jobs. And Moto cares about his job. Like, that's the thing that's most important to him, is, like, keeping the university grounds, looking good. He's very proud of his compost piles, right? Which at one point becomes sentient and try to attack him. And in a university that is known for, like all of this magical destruction, he takes a lot of pride in keeping up the appearances of it. And I can appreciate that. Like, he does not care about the magical shenanigans of the wizards. He doesn't care about the buildup of life force. He is there for his purpose, right? Which is the grounds of the university. Yeah. is a great transition to talking about Death's character arc in Reaper Man. We are introduced to a new set of antagonists of the Discworld. These are going to become Death's nemesis. I was waiting for them to be introduced. What do you think about the Auditors?
1: Oh, I love them. I love any kind of, like, extra-reality, like, forces. So, like, this combines a lot. It's, like, this is to do with, like, the cosmology and how shit works, which I like. And it's to do with, like, extra-reality beings. And specifically, like, the concept of Auditors... I think it's fascinating. Like I really I really liked the TVA in um Loki, which is weird because I don't like bureaucracy. And also I don't like when people assume they have the right. That's a thing that really really bugs me in narratives. And I I understand that it's part of the narrative, but you know like where it's like oh we have to do this why? Oh cuz like, you know, that's what we do and you don't really get a say in your own autonomy. That pisses me off. Like by what right? But anyway, I like the TVA because of their auditorness. I'm also just, like, I'm a sucker for editing choices in typography that show, like, that demonstrate things, like, the way they talk as an extension of, of how death talks in all capitals, or how one man bucket as a spirit talks, like, with, there's no quotations or punctuation and it's all on, like, lowercase italics and stuff. I really like those decisions, and as well, like, how the big Azrael talks, the one Azrael death of the universe, how he just talks in a massive, massive block capitals that take up, like, a third of the page. I really like that. It reminded me as well of the Skyfather in Sanderson's Stormlight Archives. I love these guys. They're great. Give me more of them.
0: Yeah, well, you're going to get more of them because they are... The auditors is like a very good way of describing them. They are these beings that exist outside of the universe that seek to quantify it. They are the bureaucracy of the universe. And they think that all of these things like personality and humanity are just too messy, right? It causes too many problems in their numbering system. And so that's why they petition Azriel to fire death in this book, because they think that death has become too involved and entangled with humanity. And so we get both them and we get Asriel, who, as you mentioned, is the death, right? He is the death from which all deaths come from. Azriel, of course, is a reference to the angel of death in Islamic and some Judeo traditions of angelic beings. We also get to see him in Good Omens, right? Because that's death in Good Omens introduces himself as Azrael and has wings. So there is that sort of connection there as well. I also love when Miss Flitworth, when she finally understands when death says like that the auditors, like the the IRS of the universe, and she's like, oh, they're the revenue. Why didn't you say? <laughs> and there's this like whole thing where she's just like, yeah, she's got like this distrust of like the bureaucracy as well, right? That small town farmer distrust of anyone who tries to come in and like tell us how things should be. And so that's that's also sort of an attitude with the auditors. They fire Death. So Death leaves his home. He's given a small lifetimer to live out the rest of his life right because the implication is is that the new death whenever the new death takes form is going to kill him first he t- gets to t- keep binky right because he's been good at his job so it's like that retirement gift where they are like we don't need you anymore but here's a watch or like you for all these years of service you just get this like perfunctory gift although binky is great so i'm glad that he got to keep him
1: i read it less as like a gift more as like nearly a threat you know where it's like we're taking your job be glad we're not taking the horse as well
0: although i'd like to see anybody actually try to ride binky who isn't death or someone related to death yeah so it might have also just been that they knew they couldn't control binky
1: (laughs) yeah i think binky would have just kicked them upside the head or something
0: yeah i i agree so death Goes and finds a job, being like a field hand with Miss Flitworth.
1: I like that she was no-nonsense, and also, there was a reference to great expectations there that I don't know. Did you get? Yes, I did,
0: where she said the expectation was that she would just go mad and be in her wedding dress for the rest of her life. And she was like, no, I'm not going to do that. And still had the wedding breakfast.
1: Yeah, because it's a, a you know, bad thing to waste good food. I really like that where she's just like she's pure sense. I feel like like Nanny Og and Granny Weatherwax would get on well with Miss Fitworth.
0: Yes. I agree.
1: She definitely seems like she could learn to practice headology. because I don't think she ever really demonstrates it throughout the book. Yeah, I really I really like this and I wish the whole book nearly was just this, was just like death on the farm. Because we get some really amazing moments.
0: He, of course, introduces himself to her as Bill Dore, and he stops wearing his robe and starts wearing some overalls. So I'm going to send you a picture of my copy of the book. It'll definitely be on social media by the time this comes out. This is one of my favorite covers of the books that I've received so far, and it's of death as Bill Dore with a scythe. And I love it so much. It's got like, it's like an orange and yellow cover. He's Bill Door, but he's got like the, the wheat around him. But there's also kind of a lifetimer in the background. I just, from a design point of view, I wanted to mention it because I loved it so much. The cover design is by Brian Roberts, according to my book. I thought that this was a really interesting way of developing death's character because death as a character has always been interested in humanity but he's never been forced to really live as a human and so we get that here from his interactions with miss flitworth and the surrounding townsfolk
1: when he asks miss flitworth like how do people deal with dreams how do people you know because they're you know dreams that aren't precognition and things like where he has a hangover and he's like oh this is misery and now i understand why people want (laughs) to (laughs) die which i i've never had a hangover but
0: oh you're so lucky they they do make you want to die i'm just gonna tell you that right now for when you eventually get one
1: that seems like like the popular conception of them where it's like god you just wish you were dead nearly or at least that's what it seems like in fiction
0: I've definitely said the words, I'm never drinking again, during a hangover, <laughs> so.
1: The moment where he saves the child. I loved all the interactions with death and the child, where, you know, she calls him a, a skeleton, and why doesn't the food <laughs> fall out of his bones?
0: Her mother is like, he's been a bit ill, and he, she's like, I think he's been as ill as he ever is going to be. <laughs> yeah.
1: But also, like, the child is what, like, six or seven, or something like that? But that phrase starts off with, I should think that. Why, is, why does that child talk like that? Like, that's how death <laughs> talks. Ah,
0: oh, the child is so funny. I also, uh, this might be because I recently watched City of Angels, which is a Nicolas Cage romantic film from the 90s. There's a scene where Nick Cage, who's playing an angel named Seth, is trying to introduce himself to Meg Ryan's character. He's trying to think of a name. And he's like, or a last name for himself. And he's like, my name is Seth Plate. Because it's like the thing that he sees first. I don't know. I think that City of Angels came out much later than Reaper Man. But it had a very similar vibe to me as Bill Dorr. Uh, I, I there's so much about this I like. I really like that Miss Flitworth is clearly very lonely, even though she's very commonsensical, and so she's trying to connect with Death in the only way that she really knows how. You know, she, like, invites him in, and they they sit together, but Death doesn't know how to do small talk, so they have, like, these very odd conversations, which are very funny, but also very, like, endearing at the same time. Like, their relationship is a really good relationship in a like I wasn't I don't think I was invested in it as much the first time I read it I was more invested in what was going to happen to death I actually really liked their conversations even though they were both on completely different wavelengths they were able to sort of connect with each other especially after I guess she finds out who he is
1: I don't know I read like it was kind of like she was flirting with him because there was all those like stuff where like death is like where it says that death understands words as they are, but not any of the kind of, like, subtext on them, or to uh to steal a line from Patrick Kavanaugh, the wink and elbow language of delight. Yeah, I don't you know. I'm glad that it wasn't romantic, but also, like, I like at the end. I like, first of all, the whole death being like, oh, what do people like? Uh, Flowers? Yeah, fuck it, I'll buy them all. You know, get the biggest diamond possible. And stuff, and then it's really tender the moment when he takes her out for a dance, and she realizes that she's dead since the moment he showed up at the door.
0: You know when you said I showed up and it gave you quite a start. Yes, it gave you quite a stop. Mm. The scene where they're dancing together is so good. Like they're just like they're having such a good time, and they're connecting through this activity. To me, it felt like you said very much like the end of Breakfast Club, where they're all dancing together. It, yeah. felt, it felt very much like that. I did also really like how the woman in the chocolate shop told him that diamonds were a girl's best friend, and he starts evaluating diamonds by friendliness.
1: Yeah, and then the guy says to him, well, we don't have a policy of buying them based on how affable the stones are.
0: <laughs> and then when he tells him about the, sto- the eye of Offler, he's like, and to forestall your next question, I would personally go to bed with it. <laughs> so, <laughs> I also liked in the, going back to the chocolate shop, the scene where the first box he looks at has the cats, the picture of the kittens on it. And for a moment, he thinks that some harm has befallen cats in order to make the chocolate because he's like, maybe they taste like kittens. And his voice takes on like a menacing tone. We don't get a lot of cat death content in this book, but I like that he's very... No cats were harmed in the making of these chocolates, right? Like, he's very yeah. menacing when it comes to, when it comes to cats. Hmm. So, what did you think about Death's character arc here? Because...
1: Yes, finally, I can talk about my revelation. Yes.
0: Tell us your revelation.
1: So, this is something that I noticed, because uh, I've also read the back of Soul Music, where every single one of Death's books seems to be... The death is is an absence from his normal duties, right? In Mort, it's because Mort takes over his job briefly, and Death goes and works in a restaurant and learns about what happiness is. In this one, he's laid off and uh, learns compassion on a farm. And in Soul Music, he seems to be gone. And it's something we touched on as well in Weird Sisters about people taking on aspects of death. But this whole thing is like the death. Like, all of Death's books are about Death not being Death, and can he exist outside of that? And then when I thought about it, every single one of the Discworld books is that. It's an examination of whether characters have to simply be what they are. Like, what is your place within the universe, and do you necessarily have to be it? You know, we talked about this with Adventure Time, how in the Hyperfixations episode on Adventure Time how Finn and Marceline's characters are like, well, I'm the hero slash I'm a monster uh, respectively. Is this all that I can be? And it's like, you see this in all of the Dis- of the Discworld books. In this one, like, it's a really clear example. Both Death and the Fresh Start Club are like, well, you know, we're dead. Is that all that we are? And then, like, even Pyramids. Tepic, it, his whole thing is you know, like, he's this king of a kingdom, and he doesn't want to be it, but it should be his by birthright. And, like, this whole concept that we've been touching on in all of the episodes before this, of, like, being a stranger in a familiar land, and when you get to the place where you think the things are going to be good, and it's not what you thought it would be, or after a certain while, you go, well, it's not as good now. Even Rinswin, like, in, much as we... We're kind of iffy on *Color of Magic*. *Color of Magic* is this lampoon of sword and sorcery classic tales, and it's something that Rincewind carries on throughout. Like, Rincewind is meant to be the chosen one, but he doesn't want to be the chosen one. The universe wants him to be, but he doesn't. Like, he and he's failed to be a wizard, and he's str- like that. That's why he clings on to his hat because he's done his time as a wizard. But his hat is the only thing that demonstrably proves that he is what he wants to be. It's an external demonstrating fact that he is a wizard, and so I think that all of Discworld is just about the nature of identity, and can we be more than what's prescribed to us uh like you know, by destiny, by nature, at birth, whatever you want to call it? I don't know whether that was a good revelation or not.
0: Oh, I think it's a fantastic and I, I definitely agree with you. Death here is trying to figure out what kind of death that he ought to be.
1: Yeah. Like the like the scene in, in Sorcery where Rincewind shows what type of wizard he is, with the distinction he's not the killing kind.
0: Right, exactly. And so Death often in Mort and in other books that we've read often says like there's no justice, there's only me. The, this idea that, like, he has to exist, right? And he's the the ultimate sort of end of everything. This book, with both the Morris dance references at the beginning and the end, where they talk about the one village in the Ramtox that actually dances the Morris dance correctly, because they dance both dances, right? They dance the one in May, which is supposed to celebrate the life force coming back And they dance the one in the fall when the life force starts to drain away, right? And you get winter. And the idea is you have to dance them both, right? Or else why dance either? You have to have balance. You can't have too much life force sitting around, or else things get out of whack and things go badly. That's not a new lesson necessarily, right? That's something that we've talked about before. You have to have death in order to have life. But what this book seems to be telling us is you also have to care about your job, death has to care about humanity and the people that he takes and the way that it works and his role in all of that. He asks at one point, like, what does the harvest think of that? Like, what hope does the harvest have if it's not us? And so I thought that that was very interesting because it connects also like what what, with what I was saying earlier about Moto, like this idea of like somebody has to care about this job and death is like well i do i do care about these people um and i do care about humanity and the balance of everything
1: yeah and it's like i think his saving of the little girl is key to this and like i didn't expect him to but it was definitely a cold moment where death tries to be the death that they want that the arbiters want him to be where he he says you know like what care have i that this like you know we all have a time to die and this is this girl's time to die. And it's then that Miss Flitworth is just like, well, if that's your attitude, go. I don't, like, I don't want to be with you. She and slaps th- him. Yeah, she slaps him, and it's harder, he's harder than she thought possible, but, like, she, she takes a stand there. And then Death decides that, no, he makes the distinction that, yeah, he's Death, but he's not the killing kind of Death. He's not a drama Death. And it's really interesting, because it rhymes a lot with other like, stuff from fantasy series, like in um, The Wheel of Time, there's this chapter in the last book called Those Who Fight, where it's talking about all the struggles that people have gone through. They say that, well, you can't beat us because we choose to, you know, you can never really beat the hope of humanity because we choose to believe in it, basically. We choose not to give in to darkness, or in uh, Oatbringer by Brandon Sanderson, the chapter The spear that would not break, where Dalinar says, Well you can have you can have my memories, but you can't have my pain. Or Shakespeare, You may my glory and my state depose, but not my griefs, yet still am I king of those, or even Doctor Who, where the doctor says he's a living memory to genocide, and what he's going to do it with all the pain is he holds it in his hand and says that no one else will get hurt on his watch.
0: Of course, we get that contrasted with the new Death, right? Who shows up on a skeletal steed and who is wearing a crown. What did you think about the contrast between the two Deaths?
1: I love that moment as, as an extension of this. And sorry, I'm getting a bit <coughs> choked up on that. Because in the Bible, in the book of Revelations... When the four horsemen come out, they talk about there comes a rider out on a pale horse and he is death and he's given dominion over the dead. That's another key distinction where death is able to pick up the scythe and strike down this new death because he's not a king. He's not a king. He's nearly equal to the people, you know, because what good is the harvest man without the harvest? Hold on, the specific quote I thought was quite good for you. But Bildor was already rising and unfolding like the wrath of kings. He reached behind him, growling, living on loaned time, and his hands closed around the harvest scythe. The crown of death saw it coming and raised its own weapon, but there was very possibly nothing in the world that would stop the worn blade as it snarled through the air, rage and vengeance giving it an edge beyond any definition of sharpness. It passed through the metal without slowing. No crown, said Bildor, looking directly into the smoke. No crown, only the harvest. And then where he confronts Azrael at the end, where he says, All things that are, are ours, but we must care. For if we do not care, we do not exist. If we do not exist, then there is nothing but blind oblivion. And even oblivion must end someday, Lord. Will you grant me just a little time? For the proper balance of things, to return what was given. For the sake of prisoners and the flight of birds. Lord, what can the harvest hope for if not for the care of the Reaper Man?
0: There's this idea that by keeping balance, you are actually caring for the harvest, but you can't have somebody who's not going to care in charge of that balance. And I liked, like you said, the typography. There's a lot with that in this book because the New Death, instead of the small capitals, has the italics. And the New Death also refers to. Themself as we instead of in the first person, which is more like the auditors, right? Like, this is the auditors' version of death, one that doesn't yeah. have a personality, one that doesn't have investment in his job.
1: As well, death says to Miss Fitworth, It hasn't become a he yet. Right. And then Azrael at the end says, I remember when all of this will happen again.
0: So there is some interesting things with pronouns, like this idea of like, does death need to be a personality in order to care about the balance and the the lives that it is taking or he is taking
1: it's something that ties him to humanity right because the auditors get killed for the, even the briefest use of like personality
0: right they get replaced immediately with like a different auditor yeah Yeah, and it's interesting, too, because there's that scene in the middle of the book where Miss Flitworth has him kill a chicken. He hates it. He feels like a murderer because death doesn't kill people. He takes life, but he doesn't actually kill the person. He's not the cause of the person's death.
1: Yeah, it's it's the difference between theft and stealing by finding.
0: Because I think that would have been really easy to... Have this story and then have it be like, oh, and death learned a valuable lesson and he was more human and that was great. But death isn't more human. He just perhaps understands it a little bit better. There's this great moment near the end where he's thinking about being Bill Dorr because he thinks about Bill Dorr and death as two different people. And he says, Bill Dorr was dead or at least had ceased his brief existence. But what was it? Someone's actual life was only the core of their real existence? Bill Dorr had gone, but he had left echoes. The memory of Bill Dorr was owed something. Death had always wondered why people put flowers on graves. It made no sense to him. The dead had gone beyond the scent of roses, after all. But now, it wasn't that he felt he understood, but he, at least he felt that there was something there capable of understanding. And for me, that tells me more about death character arc it's not that he became more human it's that he respects humanity more he understands that there are things that humanity does that make them important and make them vital that he doesn't necessarily understand but he respects it and admires it it's a development of empathy is what we're being told it's not something that he understands but he has empathy for it yeah the new death has no empathy he treats it all like it's a game death says
1: there's a a podcast i was listening to recently i've gotten up to date on it um it's called spirit box radio but there's one episode where there's a character called oliver who is this immortal being and he's a florist and basically like he's talking about how he was suspended at the moment of death and that this is what flowers are like. We're, you know, we, we take flowers and we preserve their beauty. And at first it seems kind of cynical where it's like, what's this weird thing that humanity does? You know, where they've taken things and we're prolonging its death. But then it ends up being, it ends up being this kind of like hopeful thing where, but yeah, it basically becomes like, well, we give flowers and it's of comfort because. Like, when we do that, we are suspending a person's beauty in the moment of death, you know? Yeah, like, it's this human thing where we try and preserve our memory or the person themselves at the moment of death for as long as possible and keep their beauty there.
0: I love the idea of developing empathy for something that you don't understand, but you don't have to understand it either. We have like this insistence sometimes that we have to understand something in order to care about it.
1: Empathy is a learned thing.
0: We have to talk about a very important character that makes its debut in this book. The, the death, death of, of
1: Rats. Rats.
0: So when Death is off work, when he's, <laughs> when he's working as a field hand, while he's Bill door, the different personifications of different kinds of death arise Briefly, He absorbs most of them by the end of the book except for the death of rats who clings to life because he, or whatever passes for life for the death of rats because he wants to have an existence outside of death and then convinces death that he deserves an existence outside of death.
1: I love the death of rats. I'm a sucker for titles. So things like death of rats, death of trees, death of mayflies. I like that. And then the fact But also, it's interesting that, like, these are aspects of death, but death is just an aspect of Azrael, death of universes, and the universe clock. You know, all other clocks are aspects of the universe clock, where the clocks tell what time it is, the universe clock tells time what time is. I think it's an interesting relationship between those and between the different forms of death. But also, the death of rats is so cute. And the fact that also, well, no, there's also there's two extra forms of death because the death of fleas is still.
0: I forgot about the death of fleas. So, yeah, they've got the death of rats, the death of fleas. And we end, of course, with the death of rats arguing with death about whether he should ride a cat or a terrier, mm. which I thought was funny. There's also a callback to Mort because when death first meets the death of rats, he says, I bet you could murder a piece of cheese right now, which yeah. is a, a callback to the I could just murder a curry from Mort. The Death of Rats is also part of one of, we've talked about this before, but one of my favorite tropes, which is a character that speaks a language or symbology that is not English, but people understand what they're talking about. So the Death of Rats says one word in all caps, squeak. But people know what he's saying.
1: Yeah, like the librarian
0: like the librarian or yeah any number of characters it's one of my favorite things i love the conversations that we see with the death of rats in future books where he's just like squeak and everyone knows everyone knows what he's saying
1: i'm excited to see the auditors i'm excited to see the death of rats
0: we're moving more towards what i think of as like the golden age of the disc world
1: oh no that implies that there's a silver and bronze age if we're going by comics.
0: I don't know if I'd go that far. I'm just saying like when I think of the Discworld, I think of like a specific version of this universe and the death of rats is definitely in it. <laughs> so, so you get that. I also really loved the references. Yeah, when they're talking about folk dances and when they say the survivors went on to polka, marzuka, foxtrot, turkey trot and trot a variety of other beasts and birds and then to those dances where people form an arch and other people dance down it which are incidentally generally based on folk memories of executions, and other dances where people form a circle, which are generally based on folk memories of plagues. I like that these are dances about death, because we get the, the dual Morris dance reference, but I like the reminder that a lot of dances are actually based on like horrific mass casualties.
1: <laughs> yeah, there's um, a dance... Yeah. We do, as part of a Cayley, which is an Irish-like dancing festival, sometimes it's on its own. Sometimes it's as part of a a fla or a fesh or something uh, along those lines, depending on what's being run. They might have a Cayley, which is like a big dance hall where we do not Irish dancing, but, like, I don't know really what you'd call it. And I don't know whether this is a thing exclusively to Irish or to Ireland, but there's one where I'm pretty sure we make an arch called the dances, like, The Siege of Ennis.
0: I think people often forget that dances are based on things from like folk or cultural memory.
1: Yeah. But also, like, a ring, a ring of rosies yeah, is the Black Death.
0: Exactly. The dances are often associated with death, and we don't think about that because we generally are like, oh, yeah, like people dance to bring life, you know, in May. But there's the other dances as well that you have to dance to, or you can't dance either.
1: In relation to dancing, in relation to dancing, Death specifically says, yeah, I take it you do dance, Mr. Dore. Famed for it, Miss Flitworth. And it's like, that's not explicitly a reference to anything, I think, save just the phrase dancing with Death.
0: Yeah, that's what I read it as.
1: Yeah, and because, like, where he tries to entreaty with the new Death as well, where he says about games, oh, I could teach you a game. Like, the concept of dancing with death, playing a game with death, like the idea of playing chess with uh, death, um, as in the, the Seventh Seal, or... There's a Magnus statement where the narrator plays, like, something different with death. Pharaoh, Yeah, pharaoh. Which is... a 17th century gambling game using cards, uh, and, like, weird hexagonal pieces and stuff yeah
0: the death and taxes because uh, i think it's benjamin franklin who originated the phrase nothing is certain but death and taxes and there's a scene where flitworth says something about like are you so you're not associated with taxes and he says no definitely not taxes so there's there's that like death and taxes situation
1: yeah death and taxes is also a great game
0: really i didn't know that was a game
1: yeah it's an indie game that came out recently and isn't like Death and tax, no. is a book or something? Isn't there?
0: I'm sure there is. I mean, it's such a common phrase.
1: Yeah, death and taxes, uh, I don't know. There's a whole bunch of them now, so I don't even know what one I was thinking of.
0: <laughs> All right, so I don't have death sightings for this book because this is a death book, so that seems like it would be a little excessive.
1: Although uh-huh. we do get a reference to life. As a capital L.
0: We do. And I think, is, is it Miss Flitworth who says that she imagines life is like electricity in trousers?
1: Yeah. Do we ever meet life?
0: Don't think so. I don't think life as an anthropomorphic concept crops up. I could be wrong, though. As you mentioned, there are zero references to sort, which I'm adding to our end of episode list. The first footnote is on page nine. It's where the trees, the, the counting pine trees, are talking to one another. When the tree vanishes, they live so long that just ages go by so fast that when a tree gets chopped down, they don't even really notice who chopped down until, like, a couple of years later. And so, it happens, lads, said one of them carefully. He's been taken to a better place. Footnote. In this case, three better places. The front gates of numbers 31, 7, and 34 Elm Street, Ankhmore Pork. So that's, like, obviously the reference to the fact that they have, like, their numbers on the trees, and so they're actually hunted by humans or, or cut down by humans because they make really good address plates.
1: Also, Elm Street, a nightmare on Elm Street.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I think Elm Street is also referenced several times in ankh Pork*. It's a address that often gets used. What was your favorite footnote?
1: I'm torn between two. Um, One is to do with this larger theme which seems to be existing across Discworld books that there is an opposite to everything. You know, like in Pyramids we have the wine which is aged backwards and then we have in Sorcery we have the concept of nerd, which is getting drunk backwards. And then this one is to do with antipasta.
0: Antipasta!
1: Yeah, antipasta, which antipasta is like part of a meal which is what it actually is but it's another yet another one of the Discworld just taking things extremely literally but that yeah so then we have this one although not co- this is a, a slightly different one but it's related to the concept of anti-pasta although not common on the Discworld, there are indeed such things as anti-crimes in accordance with the fundamental law that everything in the multiverse has an opposite they are obviously rare Merely giving someone something is not the opposite of robbery. To be an anti-crime, it has to be done in such a way as to cause outrage and or humiliation to the victim. So there is breaking and decorating, proffering with embarrassment, as in most retirement presentations, and white mailing, as in threatening to reveal to his enemies a mobster's secret donations, for example, to charity. Anti-crimes have never really caught on. (laughs) The other one is just... It was this dynamic interplay of power blocks that made Ankh-Morpork such an interesting, stimulating, and above all, bloody dangerous place in which to live. Footnote. Many songs have been written about the bustling metropolis, the most famous, of course, being Ankh-Morpork, Ankh-Morpork. So good they named it (laughs) Ankh-Morpork. But others have included, carry me away from old Ankh-Morpork. I fear I'm (laughs) going back to Ankh-Morpork, and the old favorite, Ankh-Morpork malady.
0: Those are quite excellent. As mentioned, I didn't really like the mall stuff. But I did really appreciate the footnote when everything's been wrapped up and it's like when the, no one was looking, the last surviving trolley on the Disc World rattled off sadly into the oblivion of the night, lost and alone. Footnote. It is generally thought on those worlds where the mall life form has seeded that people take the wire baskets away and leave them in strange and isolated places so that squads of young men have to be employed to gather them together and wheel them back. This is exactly the opposite of the truth. In reality, the men are hunters, stalking their rattling prey across the landscape, trapping them, breaking their spirit, taming them, and herding them to a life of slavery. Possibly. That, to me, is, like, one of the most horrific anthropomorphic personifications of, like, a very mundane object that I have ever heard. Like, because we always see, like, shopping carts, like, abandoned in weird places, and then, of course, like, people are paid like less than minimum wage to to go and collect them and put them back in into their places in the store and like it just i don't know how he managed to make that into a horrifying and sad moment with that footnote but he did
1: as someone who's worked a job in retail where there's like a big car park outside of the shop and like people do just like abandon them all over the car park because they brought the trolleys out to their cars and whatever that is something that I, I have experienced, just having to like go to the back end of this massive car park and just bring all the trolleys back and herd them into what's essentially a pen?
0: Yeah, exactly. Like if you actually think about the trolleys as being like livestock, it becomes incredibly horrifying. What was the thing that made you laugh out loud?
1: I don't know. in general, maybe the uh, just the banter between the senior faculty of the unseen university. Like the moment where they're like, "Well, why hasn't the plate? Why hasn't the mall been blown up?" Oh, because I thought we'd like to get out of it. That one I thought was really <laughs> funny. Just this other one where it's like, "We all seed you," said the dean. The trolley maintained a low profile. It can't be thinking," said the lecturer in recent runes. "There's no room for a brain." "Who says it's thinking?" said the arch chancellor. "All it does is move. Who needs brains for that?" "Prawns move," he ran his fingers over the network. Actually, prawns are quite intel. the senior wrangler began. Shut up, said Reed Cully. Hmm. Is this made though?
0: Mine was actually the very same thing in terms of, like, the, the banter between the senior faculty. So the one I had marked was the one where they're talking about the undead and vampires versus zombies. You can't be born to be undead, the senior wrangler pointed out. I mean, it's pr- traditional, the arch chancellor snapped. There were some very respectable vampires where I grew up. They'd been in their family for centuries. Yes, but they drink blood, said the senior wrangler. That doesn't sound very respectable to me. I read where they don't actually need the actual blood, said the dean, anxious to assist. They just need something that's in the blood. Hemogoblins, I think it's called. The other wizards looked at him. The dean shrugged. Search me, he said. Hemogoblins, that's what it said. It's all to do with people having iron in their blood. I'm damn sure I've got no iron goblins in my blood, said the senior wrangler. I don't know why that made me laugh so hard. Like, somebody basically just being like, no, I don't have iron goblins in my blood. Like, I don't understand it, and it has nothing to do with me. What's something that made you think?
1: I think if I were to pick a moment, it may be death interceding on humanity's part. But also, we never really, we didn't really get a chance to touch on this. Like, the whole thing about... The prisoners in towers and the flight of birds. I'm pretty sure it's just a reference to the Birdman of Alcatraz, and I'm not entirely sure why they went with that, like as the like the point. But I'm like, yeah, I don't know. That's cool. Yeah,
0: again, understanding like that. There's something there that empathy. Yeah, I really liked the scene. It's another death scene where he's talking with Miss Flitworth, and she says, "Well, that's wrong," and he says, "I don't think there is." right or wrong, just places to stand. From the point of view of someone who doesn't pay taxes and does smuggling to keep their family alive, like that's the most right thing is to keep their family alive. But from the point of view of perhaps the revenue or the tax collectors, that's wrong. And so like this idea of like, there's no right or wrong, just places to stand. Like you have to make the best decision based on what information you have and what you think is right at the time.
1: Yeah, uh so there's that. And then also at the end of... So Lemony Snicket wrote a prequel series to a series of unfortunate events called All the Wrong Questions about a young Lemony Snicket within the world of a series of unfortunate events. And I won't spoil what happens at the end, but something bad has happened, like very bad. One of the characters has done something awful. And that's just how it ends. And then as they're walking away, the character muses... You can never be sure at that moment whether you're wrong or right, but you have to be certain.
0: Right, you have to find that place to stand. And from death's perspective, morality is perhaps a lot more flexible than humans would think that it is. Next episode. Discworld is going to Golden Age Hollywood in 1990's Moving Pictures, the first novel of the Industrial Revolution's series. Where can people find you online and on their headphones, Nigel?
1: You can find me online on Twitter, at Spicy Nigel, where, you know, I'd just be tweeting things. I'd be coming up with tweets. I'd be tweeting them. <laughs> and then you can find my podcasts, Archive Admirers, uh, which is a biweekly re-listen slash discussion of the Magnus Archives by Rusty Quill, on Twitter, at Admirers Archives, and then everywhere podcasts are, and Hyperfixations. A podcast where we invite uh, a different guest on every week to talk about something they're passionate about. On Twitter at Hyperfixations P, or on Instagram at Hyperfixations Pod, and then also all the podcatchers.
0: We've never really talked about this all that much, but I feel like Nanny Ogg's book club is sort of a spinoff of both Monkey Off My Backlog and Hyperfixations. It's like the child between the two, because this originally yeah. started...
1: It's a monkey off my backlog.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's a monkey off your backlog, but also I was on Hyperfixations to talk about my fixation with Terry Pratchett, and that's what led us to doing this. So, yeah. Yeah. I would recommend both podcasts for sure, Hyperfixations, and then, of course, my other podcast, Monkey Off My Backlog, at monkey backlog on Twitter and wherever you want to listen to your podcast. It's a podcast about pop culture productivity where we watch films, read books, play video games, listen to music, whatever you can think of. That has been on our lists forever. So just like Terry Pratchett's been on Nigel's lists forever. You can also find me on Twitter at Swela Tessa. Swela is spelled S-W-E-H-L-A. You can find this podcast on Twitter at Nanny's Book Club and on Instagram at Nanny Ogg's Book Club. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes and Spotify. You can review us on Spotify now. Please do so. Please follow us on Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, read us out, Nigel.
1: Albert. Yes, Master. Have you not got something to do? Some little job. ''I don't think so,'' said Albert. ''Away from here is what I mean.'' ''Ah, what you mean is you want to be alone,'' said Albert. ''I am always alone, but just now I want to be alone by myself.'' ''I'll just go and, uh, do some little jobs back at the house then,'' said Albert. ''You do that.'' Death stood alone, watching the wheat dance in the wind. Of course, it was only a metaphor. People were more than corn. They whirled through tiny, crowded lives, driven literally by clockwork, filling their days from edge to edge with the sheer effort of living. And all lives were exactly the same length, even the very long and very short ones, from the point of view of eternity, anyway. Somewhere, the tiny voice of Bill Dorr said, From the point of view of the owner, longer ones are best. Death looked down. A small figure was standing by his feet. He reached down and picked it up. Held it up to an investigative eye socket. I knew I'd missed someone. The Death of Rats nodded. Death shook his head. Death shook his head. No, I can't let you remain, he said. It's not as though I'm running a franchise or something. Are you the only one left? The Death of Rats opened a tiny skeletal hand. The tiny Death of Fleas stood up, looking embarrassed but hopeful. No. This shall not be. I am implacable. I am death. Alone." He looked at the Death of Rats. He remembered Azrael and his tower of loneliness. Alone? The Death of Rats looked back at him. Picture a tall, dark figure surrounded by cornfields. No, you can't ride a cat. Whoever heard of the Death of Rats riding a cat? The Death of Rats would ride some kind of dog. Picture more fields, a great horizon spanning network of fields rolling in gentle waves. Don't ask me, I don't know. Some kind of terrier, maybe. Fields of corn, alive, whispering in the breeze. Right, and the death of fleas can ride it too. That way you kill two birds with one stone. Awaiting the clockwork of the seasons, metaphorically. And at the end of all stories, Azrael, who knew the secret thought. I remember when all this will be again. The end.